I want to welcome you to the Pro Mindset Podcast. The Pro Mindset Podcast is all about diving into the headspace that results in championship performance. High-performing athletes, winners, have this mental flow and have a positive headspace for their performances and success. Join me, Craig Doman, sports attorney and NFL agent, on this podcast. I will interview pro athletes, college athletes, football coaches, and sports personalities. Together, we can discover how you can get in the flow and have your own pro mindset. So today on Pro Mindset, we have Justin Forsett, former NFL running back. Justin, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to talk about a lot of things today, Justin. We're going to talk about your career, your highs and lows, your mountaintop experiences, your valleys, and you were able to put together a a nine-year career, correct? Correct, sir. You weren't the first pick. They didn't roll out the red carpet, and you didn't know if you were going to make the team from the jump, and you weren't a game one starter. Right, yeah. I was a a seventh-round draft pick. I was fourth running back in the rotation. Uh, on the depth chart where normally they only keep three running backs when I arrived and got drafted by Seattle and uh, been an unstable journey knowing what the next season was, was going to bring for the most part. No doubt. So let's start with your entree into the NFL, which is the NFL draft. So let's go back to the spring of 2008. What were you hoping was going to happen on draft weekend? And I was super excited. I knew it was a super talented class especially in my position, I had talked to my agents. They had this revealing that you could expect to go, you know, as high as the third round. So I knew, like, the first day probably wasn't going to go off the board. So the second day was kind of my time, and I should, should expect to come off and be with the team. And so I had pretty good high expectations going in that I was going to be a team with the team uh, early. So describe for our audience what it was like to be drafted in the seventh round. So back in 2008, did we only have two days of the draft? Yeah, yeah, it was two days. Two days, where now it's three, and they did that for TV. So you were on day two, which was a Sunday, because they used to do it on Saturday and Sunday, right? Exactly, yep. So when you got that call, who called you from Seattle? I'm trying to remember her name, but it was Mike Holmgren's secretary. Yeah, I was actually on the call because I got drafted late in – I was getting ready. People were calling me for free agents, for free Absolutely. agent signing. So I had free agent. So I was talking to the Vikings at the time on the call, and they were talking about bringing me in, and the Bills talking about bringing me in, and uh, for undrafted free agent. And Dad got a call and uh, picked up from Seattle. He told him he's like, "Hey, Justin, talking right now to another team. We'll call you back." And they were like, "Hey." He may want to pick up this phone call uh, because we're about to draft him here in a couple picks. Okay, so you show up in Seattle as mm-hmm. a drafted rookie in 2008, and they had a pretty deep depth chart. Mike Holmgren was your head coach. What right. was your game plan to make the 53? My mindset going in was I had a chip, huge chip on my shoulder going in the seventh round, still in this position where I felt undervalued, underappreciated. And my mindset was I was going to make room. I love this image of Scottie Pippen back in the day when he had, he had this huge dunk on Patrick Ewing. And Patrick Ewing is a Hall of Fame center uh, going against another Hall of Fame player and Scottie Pippen. But 
he's a ginormous seven-foot player that's standing in front of the rim, and you can see in this picture, in this image of a poster, Scottie Pippen has the ball in his hands, raising up to dunk. He has his elbow on the opposite hand, push Patrick Hewitt out of the way to dunk on him in his face, and that's the mindset that I had. Like, I knew what in front of me, the odds seemed insurmountable, and that it was going to be a long shot for me to make from the outlook and in, but I was determined to make room no matter what they put in front of me, no matter what adversity or what position, what draft, what position of draft I was taking, I would go in there and make them notice me. So that was the mindset. In your mind, what did you do extra as a young man, as a rookie, to show the coaching staff that you deserved to make the team? Was it watching extra film? Was it knowing your playbook? Was it talking to the vets? Was it hanging out, going and seeing your coach in off time? Was it staying after practice and on the judge's machine or doing RV mm-hmm. drills? What are the things that you can recall that you did that you thought might get you over the hump? Yeah, sure. So for me, my, my thought process was I'm going to fail at the controllables. If I want to have a breakthrough and I want to make this team, I must excel at those things that I can't control. And that was two effort, preparation. And as far as the, the mindset, I knew I wasn't super gifted like some of these other guys that came out and they were six feet and turn some pounds and run four foot forties. No, that wasn't me. Uh, my gift mainly was in my mindset, the toughness, my ability to persevere, my work ethic. I just had that grind mentality and I was going to get stuff done and I was going to make people better around me. So that meant me just being smarter, knowing my plays inside and out, knowing not only what my job is, but the other guys around me, what their job was. That meant me studying extra. That meant me going up to office hours with the special teams coach because he was going to really get on the field and make the roster right away, uh, getting his good favor. It meant me staying after learning how to catch something I had never done in my life because the more I could do, the more value I added. So just finding ways where I can add more value uh, team, even from my position. And, you know, working on drills, trying to get faster, trying to be stronger in the weight room, just to put myself in peak position so I'm prepared for my moment when it comes. Okay, so – Justin, you sound like, just from what you just described, the kind of guy that's had to scratch and claw, and you kind of advertise the mindset that dynamite comes in small packages, so watch out, here I come. Yes, sir. Is is that how you did it? That's it. I always felt like I was the underdog, and I was going to make sure that I had that chip on my shoulder, and I I actually used that as fuel to, to help reach my goals. That's awesome. So let's just kind of talk about some of the guys you've played with. Was Aaron Rodgers at Cal Berkeley when you were there, or was he gone? He was there. He was there. So what is a guy like, you know, Aaron Rodgers, who's still playing on his upper 30s, what makes him, like, be able to compete at the level that he competes at? Man, he is, don't get me wrong, he is an amazing talent. Like, he can do it all. I don't know if we've seen a more talented quarterback in NFL history. Just his ability to be as accurate as he is in throwing the football, his athleticism to be able to move outside of the pocket. He definitely has uh, those skill sets that set him above. But more so what's between the ears for him, like he is just an extreme student of the game. He is an, a great teammate. He, uh, I remember when I first got there and even getting into college, like, it was a miracle how I got into to Cal, and I was no scholarship offers, and they offered me out of the blue when somebody got hurt in spring training camp. And he already had came up to me, introduced himself, and knew my stats, and 
welcomed me onto the team and played catch with me uh, when I got there. And uh, unbelievable, humble, hungry person. Like he never got into this place of complacency, just kind of fighting to always be better each and every day. And I believe that's what what allows him to be where he's at right now and have longevity. Okay, so let's go back to you. Mm-hmm. You know, looking over your career, it looks like to me you played for five teams? Seven teams. Seven. Mm-hmm. So you signed with seven different teams. Well, it looks like the mountaintop season was 2014 with the Baltimore Ravens. Right. And you had dang near 1,300 yards rushing, eight TDs. That had to be like the crown jewel of your career. Is that fair? Oh, for sure it was, definitely. So that was like year seven? Yep. It took you until your seventh year to break 1,000 yards and to be like the guy. Mm-hmm. Yep, age 29. 29 years of age. Okay, so you're 29, you're in Baltimore, you're playing with Harbaugh. Was Crockett Gilmer there yet? Yeah, Crockett was there. Crockett's one of my guys. He's crazy. Yeah, he is. That's my guy. He's West Texas. Okay, yeah, yeah. so in 2014, I was probably at one or two of your games that year. What was different about that year for you as a professional than any other year? And how were you affected mindset-wise, preparation-wise, belief in yourself-wise, passion for the game, motivation, all those things? What was different about 14 than any other year of your career? Man, I was just in such a place of peace going into that season because of the hardship that I had the year prior, being in Jacksonville, not seeing the field, being not appreciated, stuck on the sideline. I had an injury at the end of the year. And I didn't know after that season, didn't know or think if I would be able to play in the NFL again. And got a call out of nowhere. And I just remember saying to myself, I'm like, man, God, if, if I can get another shot, like I'm just going to try to be the best player, the best teammate I could be and have impact that goes beyond the field. And whatever happens, happens. Like I know that given the opportunity, I'm going to try to be an all-pro running back. If not, I'm going to try to be you know, an all-pro businessman. And I'm going to work on being an all-pro husband and an all-pro father. Those things, that was the mindset. So whatever life threw at me, I felt like I was in a place of peace where – I was just going to excel, and I ended up being thrust into the limelight and into the starting role and made the most of it. But I just remember the peace that I had throughout that year going into that season and just being grateful. You know, as a running back, it's a little bit different than some positions because, man, if you give the running back the rock, he'll find the hole. Mm-hmm. Okay, and especially like outside zone, it's really not a play. It's really just find the hole. Yep. And sometimes, right, what was your week like in preparation for games in 14 when you knew you were toting the rock every week? Yeah, it was literally, you know, I worked hard, I practiced hard every week, but getting into that season and, make, and knowing that I was going to be the bell cow, so to speak, every weekend and week out, it was about preparation and about getting my body ready, getting as much treatment as I could, getting like 20 carries a game, just making sure my body was in peak shape to re- to be able to withstand and sustain throughout this 16-game season and playoffs. So it would take me, especially towards the middle of that season, it would take me, you know, after a game on Sunday, it would take me until like the next Saturday to get feel like I was okay and get ready to get back into playing shape. What was the thing that you did that helped you the most recover? 
Oh, man. It was a combination of massage and the contrast of ice and cold tub in the mornings before getting into work, arriving to work early and making sure I was there getting that treatment. Definitely the massage, doing like two of those a week and getting up early in the morning and contrasting hot and cold was uh, the best for me. Well, one of the things you find once you get in the league is that if you can't recover, you can have a big game, but you won't be having any other big games. Right. I mean, that's the biggest battle for especially running backs. Every single – oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say the old adage is your best ability is availability. You've got to be available. Got to be available. Running backs, you're either getting hit, tackled below the waist, or you're scoring a touchdown. You scored a bunch of touchdowns that year, or you're running out of bounds. But you take more hits than anybody else in the field. Mm-hmm. So what was the most common injury that you had to deal with or recovery body parts that you had to deal with from week to week? It was probably the neck and shoulders. And you miss one hit, and that was always the ground. Like, I mean, you get hit by the men, and then you get hit at the ground, and then you're pass protecting, and it's a lot of contact. So I would say definitely the shoulders and neck were probably the most sore week to week. Gotcha. Okay. So was Ray Lewis still there? No, he was not. So you missed Ray Ray. Yeah, he yeah. Was played against him. Played against him, but no, was was not on the same team. Okay. So who was the dude for the 14 Ravens that – was kind of the leader of the pack for the entire team. Who was the leader on, the, on for the entire team? Yeah. Probably Sizzle. Terrell Suggs was the guy. Okay. So because our, our podcast is about mindset, Suggs has had a 15-year career or whatever it's been. Mm-hmm. What was his secret sauce? What was his magic that enabled him to perform at a high level for so long? Man, he was a freak of nature, just a massive individual with a combination of size and speed. But his competitiveness, I mean, he would just find ways to compete in anything, whether it was in video games, whether it was card games, whether it's on the field and a drill that he's done millions of times over and over. Like, he would always find ways to compete and dominate and win. And that competitive mindset, I believe, like, even, you know, it's going over 15, 16 years in the league. Like, he just find ways to challenge himself and to find ways to be the best. So uh, I think that was kind of his secret sauce. Gotcha. We've been talking about the positive. Let's talk a little bit about negative. Mm-hmm. When you were cut the first time, describe for our audience what that was like when you knew you were getting cut and how that happened, and then the nature of the conversation you had with whoever you talked to. Yeah, the first time I got cut, I remember it was my rookie year, and I just made the roster. I made it through training camp and going to my first game. I was on NIAC roster playing the Buffalo Bills, and then that following Tuesday, I was in the barbershop getting a haircut, and they called me to tell me that uh, they needed to come in. They were going to waive me and bring my playbook in. And I uh, was one of the assistants in the scouting department. And, yeah, I went in after my haircut, went. And as you can imagine, that was a long haircut. Uh, but I got my playbook and went in. And they had told me they were releasing me in, in hopes to try to get me back on practice squad. But, yeah, that was, uh, that was a tough one for me. So what were you thinking when you left the stadium in Seattle, left the facility? Uh, well, I was just praying that somebody would pick me up. I was like, man, I want somebody to give me a shot, somebody to actually believe in me, saw what I did, was able to do during preseason and give me a shot. So I wanted to leave and see if anyone would give me a shot to actually play on their roster. So that was my, my thinking. You end up being on the Seahawks active roster 14 games that season. Yep. So were you on the practice squad just three weeks? 
So I actually went to Indianapolis, and the coach picked me up off waivers after that game, and I was there for about three or four weeks, and then I came back and after Indianapolis cut me, and I came back and I finished the rest of the season there. Okay, so was Peyton Manning there, or was he gone? He was. He was there. Okay, so i got to ask you about Peyton Manning. Uh-huh, yeah. Tell me, you know, you're in the huddle with Peyton, you're in the meetings with the offense with him. What made him special? Man, he was just so gifted. I've never been around a mind like his, just so smart, understanding football, just the creativityness. Like, he was the offensive coordinator within the huddle, and uh, he was an incredible leader. When you get in the huddle with him, you're going to get three things. You're going to get warning, you're going to get encouragement, and you're going to get instruction, and he was going to help you. Really took a liking to me. But when I got there, got a chance, I think my first game with them, I was just a return specialist, so kick return to punt return. And I remember playing in my actual first real regular season game in uh, Minnesota and uh, got a punt and almost took it to the house and uh, set us up for a game winning field goal. And after the game, like him coming up to me and was like, man, Justin, you did that for us. We won that game because of you. And he wrapped his arms around me and we headed back to the bus and he offered me some beer I don't drink. But it was a pretty surreal moment for a rookie getting his first shot in the NFL in the big league. So I will always remember him for that. Okay, so was that the year they won the Super Bowl? That was... The year after. I want to say, yeah, it might have been a year after. I think it was the year after, because I think the Patriots went undefeated that year and lost to the Giants at the end of the season. Yep. Well, I will say this. When Peyton Manning was in Indy, they had a fine-tuned machine. They did. I mean, their offense was... I mean, the defense wasn't as strong, but the offense was... They knew how to score points, and they always had good receivers and good running backs, you know, Edge and James and so on and so forth. So that that was a – but that was a very short time period that you were in Indy. Yep, very short. Okay. So being on seven different teams, was it all the same? Oh, no. No. Uh, you got a chance to be on that many teams. You get a chance to see what a, the good organizations and the bad organizations and, you know, being on good teams and – seeing, you know, low standards and high standards. So you get a little bit of all. What was the common denominator of the organizations that, you know, were winners? Oh, man. Leadership from within, like outside of the coaches, like you had really good leaders uh, that held each other accountable. Communication was there. The organization provided all the necessary tools for guys to be successful on and off the field. So those are some of the common denominators. What was the biggest void or weakness for the organizations you played for that didn't know how to win? Uh, Lack of accountability. There was, like, no trust. Trust there. Everybody was there just very selfish, just motivated by personal gain, and that was it. And it wasn't really like a true team and had true camaraderie or chemistry. Well, one of the things about Pro Mindset that I talk about is there's seven ingredients you've got to have to maximize your career. One is you have to believe in yourself because other people reflect you more than you reflect them. Mm-hmm. You don't believe in yourself. Are they going to believe in you? They don't. Fair. Mm-hmm. The second thing is you have to have passion for the game. And everybody does, but they really don't. And as soon as you get paid, as soon as you get in the league, a lot of times other passions start to passing football, whether it's cars, it's trips, girls. It's fun fixes. They still love ball, but they really had a choice. 
between going to practice or going to the golf course or going to the golf course. Yeah. So I did a podcast on Tom Brady, and I talked about the fact that he still has a youthful spirit. He's a middle-aged man playing a boy's game, and he still has that boy's spirit at 43 years old. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be still playing. And then the next two things is you have to train hard, work hard, and that includes your pit crew, your recovery. And then you've got to have a good lifestyle. Your lifestyle has to be consistent with your dreams. If you're saying you want to play 10 years in the NFL, but you're partying all the time, you're not working out, you're not taking care of your body, eventually you're going to have a collision when your career is going to be over. Yeah. And then the last two is you have to have winning habits. That's your pattern of behavior. It's your schedule. It's your folk, all that stuff. And then you also, the last one, which is the one that shows up on Sports Center Top 10, it shows up on Sundays, is you have to have situational performance. You've got to know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it when you get the opportunity to do it. And most importantly, you've got to capitalize on the opportunity of a lifetime. Let's say it's red zone, fourth and goal. You win the game, and you're down five, so you can't kick the field goal. Three seconds left, and they're going to give you the rock. They're not even going to do a play action. They're going to give you the rock. They call your number. Can you capitalize on that opportunity of a lifetime during the lifetime, which is that one play, of the opportunity? So those are the seven things when I reverse engineer NFL players and high elite performers, they got all those seven things. Which one of those things is the most important to you? Belief, passion, motivation, training, lifestyle, habits, and performance. uh, So many good things in there. I would say belief and passion would be at the at the top because you got to believe in yourself. You got to have confidence in yourself and the work that you put in. But you also got to be passionate about it. You got to be committed to the process. You got to be committed in, in the midst of obstacles and adversity because those things are inevitable. And you see players that don't make it, they have the tendency to wane because the the passion is not there and they don't believe in themselves and they're not getting that validation from the people that they want, validation from coaches, GMs, and, you know, teammates, so they give up. So being able to believe in yourself when no one else does and being passionate about your, your job and your purpose, I think those are the most important. Okay, so let's use belief. Let's start with that. Mm-hmm. What I have found is that when rookies come to the NFL, if they don't believe and they're not confident about themselves, they don't have this, like, superhero mindset. You know, if you look at superheroes, they save the world. It doesn't matter if it's Batman, Robin, you pick the one. They save the world. They're superheroes. You have to have that kind of mindset as a rookie or you will get exposed. And the OC won't want to give you the ball. He won't want to give you the rock. The quarterback's going to say, hey, I don't want to throw it to him because I don't think he's going to catch it. So let's say you walk into – training camp, preseason games, and you're like 99% belief. From my perspective, that'll get you cut. Yeah. you got to believe 100%. But belief is something you've got to get every single day. It's a choice you make every single morning. Do I got it today? So my question to you is, when you didn't have the belief, how did you fill up? It's almost like going to a gas station when you're running out of gas in your car. What do you do when you're getting low on gas? Stop and refuel. Yep. Well, when you get low on belief, maybe nobody knows it yet because you haven't gotten out on the field. Maybe nobody knows it yet because your position coach hasn't asked you any questions in the running back meeting. 
What do you do to refill your belief tank when you find yourself low? Well, for for me, I always had high belief in myself. I always trained like a Pro Bowl running back, even you know year one, year two. That's I believe that I just needed a shot and opportunity. I really wasn't low on the belief side. Like I, I believe when I got there, I belonged there. And I think that's what separated me from a lot of people, especially some of the young guys that came in with me. Is that like when they got there and like, oh man, I'm just happy to that arrived. I'm like, man, I expected to be here. I worked to get here to be here, and you know, so my belief and confidence in myself was in there when no one else saw it. You know, it just took me year seven to be able to show it and to be able to prove that, man, I was right. You're like buddies, teammates that didn't make it. That should. Have you ever had a few teammates that they had more athletic ability than they needed? More talent yeah. than, but they still didn't make it. What did you see as the common denominator or common failure for guys that should have made it that didn't make it? I would say perseverance, the ability to persevere through adversity. We all face it at some form or fashion, but you got to be able to have endurance in this game because there's so much that's up against you and you're going to have to face and you have to get used to having some setbacks and, and being able to respond to those setbacks is hugely important. And I've seen guys face adversity and they'll become overwhelmed. Um, they didn't know how to respond. They started getting distracted. They would start looking at those things that they couldn't control, whether it's, oh, these coaches don't like me. They start counting roster spots like, man, they only keep three running backs. Uh, I'm number four. There's no way I'm going to play. And I watched them just like self-sabotage because they didn't choose to excel at what they could control. And I saw people get complacent. You know, they make it and arrive and feel like you can't tell me anything. Like, I know it all. They weren't coachable people or players. So I will see a combination of those things for guys that didn't make it or be able to have a long career. Okay, so you talked about, Justin, uh, count the reps, look at the depth chart. How do you not do that? I mean, if you're the starter and you got a big paycheck, you ain't worried about it. Mm-hmm. But if you know that it's, hey, it's, let's say you and me, you know, obviously you're a way better athlete than I am, but let's, and you're a lot younger than I am. But let's say we're on the same team in the same room on the same position fighting for one spot. How do you handle that? How do you focus on your play? You know, are you hoping that I put the rock on the ground? Are you hoping yeah. that I fumble? You got to put yourself, because I've been in competing with amazing athletes since yay high. I know, since I started playing football, going into college, you know, I was battling, competing with Marshawn Lynch in the running back room. I get to the NFL, and I'm, you know, I'm battling people that, you know, have went to Pro Bowls and widely known names. And my main focus is that, man, I cannot control how much these guys are getting paid, what their salaries look like, and how long their contract is, and how many people they normally take. Like, there's always an exception to the rule. Be the exception. That was my mindset. I'm going to make room regardless. I don't care about those things. I'm the exception. And it took that mindset even when I was in middle school, high school, when they're telling me less than 1% would ever make it into the NFL. I would take that information. I would say, thank you, but I'm that 1%. And that was my mindset going into these locker rooms with guys that, you know, had these big contracts. They've been playing for a long time, veteran players, and I'm competing with other young backs for this one spot. I'm like, man, I'm going to make room. I don't care. I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to stand out. I'm going to find ways to stand out. I'm going to be smarter. I'm going to work harder. 
and I'm going to make room for myself. Well, I love that attitude, Justin, because, you know, if in fact only 1% of the guys are going to make it, why not me? Right. Okay. And the reality of it is every NFL team, before training camp even starts, they know the 53 guys out of 90 that are going to make it. They've already penciled them in. Now, some of them are in ink. You know, starters, yes. Some of them are in pencil. And then a lot of guys can feel it. They can feel like, hey, coach doesn't want me to make it. Coach is not coaching me. Coach is loving on this other guy, giving him more respect than he's given me. He's making sure he knows the play. He's hoping I don't know what to do on the play. But here's the deal. I would say in the history of of pro football, 100 years, it never goes as planned. Mm -hmm. Never does. Yep. And the coach is like, we didn't think he could do it. Well, he's your starter. (laughs) And then the guy they thought was going to be the guy they let go or they traded him. So that's what players got to understand is that the odds can be a stacked against you. Your coach can be pulling against you. You can even feel the mojo of he's playing favorites with somebody else to make it over you. Still doesn't mean you're not going to make it. Right. What a lot of guys do is they quit. They shut it down. They get themselves cut. The day before they get cut, the dude that they wanted to make it gets hurt. He's on IR all year. And then they go, well, shit, we got to go get somebody else off the streets because the guy we have can't do it either. (laughs) Yep. Where if that guy busts his butt and balls out, he just slides right in. Yep. I was going to say, if you can't handle the pressure of people doubting you or underestimating you, then you're in the wrong game. That's what the NFL's about. That's it. It's going to happen. Even after you get paid, they doubt you. Yep, that's true. Who's the dude that you played with or played against that you have the most respect for because of how they were a pro's pro in the NFL? Man, I was just talking about this earlier today, and uh, one of the guys that, you know, one of my favorite teammates outside of uh, my brother, Marshawn Lynch, is Steve Smith Sr., just the ultimate competitor. Even when I played with him, we were teammates. He was, you know, close to 40, and just his mindset to dominate every day, and I'm not just talking about game day. I'm talking practice where he was going to go out there and he was trying to take everybody's head off, and he had that chip on his shoulder, and he had something to prove each and every day that he wanted to leave a legacy and impression on all of our minds that, man, this guy was special. If you got a chance to play with him on his team and witness him, you witness greatness, and he was a guy that stood out to me throughout my career. Well, I remember when he was a rookie with Carolina, when he came in and took the world by storm, I think he was a fourth rounder at Utah State. Nothing special. And that man has built a sportscasting career, and he had a hell of a career in the NFL. Yep. He frustrated a lot of corners, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, he did. He was a pretty good smack talker, too. Uh, yeah, he was a high, uh, or at least a Hall of Fame trash talker. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so tell everybody what you're doing now. I know you're a successful entrepreneur. Just kind of share with everyone what you're doing, how you got to what you're doing, and where you're going with it. Yeah, for sure. So I run a personal care brand where we create hygiene products for athletes called Hustle Clean. 
And uh, it's convenient products with clean ingredients for this active consumer. Saw a need within the locker room, been in sports and fitness my entire life, where I couldn't always practice good hygiene immediately after workouts and wanted uh, a brand that resonated with this active community and saw that there was a need within the space. And so why not us? Why not me? Start something. And our mission is to kind of really be that Gatorade of hygiene within this space and personal care. And uh, we've been growing it for a number of years, me and a couple of college teammates of mine, and got our brand out there now being over uh, all of the uh, Target stores in the country. Increasing distribution will be in over 6,000 stores this year. And, uh, yeah, got some really cool products underway in a couple of months. So uh, really excited where we're headed, and uh, it's been a fun journey keeping my uh, competitive juices going. Okay, so Justin, let's say that you decided to jump into a different endeavor. Because you can always add products. You guys mm-hmm. can get bigger, maybe get acquired, maybe acquire somebody, all those types of things. What are some of the things that are your dreams for post-career that you haven't had a chance to do yet? Oh, man. I would, you know, and I travel and I do some speaking too right now, but I would love to just, you know, be able to, you know, pick up the family, go travel around the world and just encourage and inspire people and serve different communities that are in need. That's one thing that is kind of on my wish list to do more of and on a broader level is just to have real true uh, genuine impact in this world, not just in this small community uh, that I'm in right now, but that's a wish list for me. we got some crazy social unrest going on right now, mm-hmm. and rightly so. We've had some people that have been wronged very badly. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, regardless of the color of the skin. What would you say to America and being an athlete where you've been in the locker room with people from different places, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different skin colors, and you're all on one mission working together? Nobody's colorblind, but you're kind of colorblind in those situations. What, what is your perspective on that? Yeah, no, man, I think that, you know, we're dealing with issues, you know, an unrest right now where over the years, you know, even way before I was even born, we've placed a Band-Aid over broken bones, and now we're seeing the results of that where there's unrest and there's been injustices, and, you know, it's really a human rights issue where, you know, and especially people that look like me within the black community haven't been uh, treated fair or seen justice in our community and I think it's a time for us to to listen and have those uncomfortable conversations and break down some of those barriers where you may have not interacted with someone that didn't, you know, doesn't look like you because you were afraid or you didn't know what to say because you were afraid to offend. It's just like time for all of us to sit down and have those uncomfortable conversations and find solutions to the problems that we have right now. I think it's definitely something that in the past we have these moments of revolutions or moments of protest, but I think this is different. I think this is a time now where we can create, you know, lasting change. Um, if everyone gets on board and has those uncomfortable conversations and talk and listen to figure out uh, what the solutions can be, but at least I think people's eyes are open and hearts are open right now to receive that uh, because people are really, uh, I guess, seeing, you know, becoming more aware of what's going on. I agree with that. That's well said. The thing I would add to that is that anybody that is not living in a cave has good friends with people that don't look like them. If we could treat everybody that looks different than we do like we treat our friends that look different than we do, the world would be a better place. Yep. Because 
every one of us has, I have some dear friends that are black gentlemen. I just have to make sure I treat everybody that way. I really think it's getting to know people and understand people because the more you understand them, the more you realize this, we're all the same. We're all the same. Humans like to differentiate between redheads and blondes and blue eyes and, you know, color of our skin and all that other stuff. But we're all the same. And I think as we move into a more biracial society, there are a lot of players, especially in the NFL, that are in very uncomfortable positions because they have two parents that don't look the same. Because yep. I've got clients like that. And they love both and they love everybody, but everybody else is telling you you're not supposed to. Well, Justin, what did I not ask you that you would like to talk about? Anything? No, I think we hit it on. All of it. I appreciate you being on today. You did a great job. I pray we have some change. Um, it's more people that look like me that need to change than people that look like you. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to change. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pro Mindset. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can follow us on our website, promindsetpodcast.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at promindsetpodcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you the next time. Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or... House cleaning. Or... Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.